0: Welcome to the podcast Med Family. I am Eric Acker, the host, with Karen. Hey guys! Uh, so as usual, if you want to follow us on Instagram, ask us any questions. It's Med Family MD, and then of course subscribe to any of our the podcasting platforms out there. Um, so we'll see how long we last again a day late uh, <laughs> and on my week off. So I don't exactly have a whole lot of excuses. Nope,
1: this was my fault. I did. I I had a hair appointment last night and. We got home, put the kids to bed, and just totally spaced it. Yes.
0: So did nothing yesterday. Have no <laughs> good excuse. Um,
1: <laughs> he was a single dad of oh, five kids. You don't want to
0: be like, oh, I can't five hours. kids. How, <laughs> how horrible. Um, no, it, it was, they were the usual selves, which basically means ha- a handful. But uh, <laughs> it was great. But I, I finished off our rotation last week and I'm no longer I was supposed to be if I wasn't taking the week off I would be on continuity clinic but I'm not on continuity clinic Uh, so it's been nice Uh, I would say I've been sleeping in but that is not an accurate statement either I'm, I'm not waking up as early as I had to the last two weeks so there's that there's a silver lining there
1: we've kind of taken turns
0: yeah I mean like I don't have to get up so I can lay in bed but I'm not really asleep. So.
1: It's probably better for you for that, especially with. But not LD to get too up. used to it. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Anyway, um, yeah, the week of uh, Eat South ended with a bang. Uh, <laughs> can't, can't get too much into the details, but a bit, uh, basically, one of my patients decided they wanted to uh, have rapid responses called on them uh, at the. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm finishing my, I'm, all my notes are done. I'm just going through and being like, I, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. I need to write my handoffs. I need to write the hospital courses for all my patients so that the next person coming in, who's going to get six brand new patients, they can look at my patients and know exactly what's going on mm-hmm. and they don't have to read through a dozen different chart notes and everything like that. So I, I'm trying to be diligent and I, I'm not particularly late i think it's like 6 p.m so i'm like eh, yeah. it could be a lot later so i'm like i'm finishing i'm literally on my last sentence of my last hospital course i'm going to hand off all my patients to uh tiago who's a trinity student but he's on my he's on eight south with us so i'm going to hand off all my patients to tiago and i'm going to get out of here because in like 30 minutes the night nighttime team is going to show up and tiago gonna hand off all the patients uh, in the meantime, like the other other resident is still there, um, so there's three of us, three interns. And technically, the other resident is someone who was a transition year that is now an intern, but he's got basically a year's worth of residency Experience. experiences underneath of him. So he's essentially a second year, which is great. Uh, he's it's, he's he's a wealth of knowledge, and it's always nice to have him around. Our third year has. It disappeared as of 4 p.m. Like, when when sign-out was allowed to happen, fourth years is out of there. Like, it's not fourth year, 30, 30 years out of there. like. So it's just us three interns, and I get a message from the nurse with a picture. It's never a good sign when the nurse sends you a picture <laughs> in the secure chat. And, like, I look at it, and I'm like, huh, I know I ordered a lab, like, 30 minutes ago as a stat on this patient. I would like to know what that lab result is and then like probably like a minute 30 seconds later on the overhead a rapid response is called for that patient like okay time to go upstairs Uh, so thankfully all the guys all the uh, interns like okay we're going to all go upstairs and immediately like nurses explaining what's been going on what's what's happening and it's like oh that's concerning and i spend the next 45 minutes calling everybody uh yeah uh,
1: consults
0: or uh, yeah consults talking to the family talking to other consults talking to my attending trying to get a hold of the uh, talking to the blood bank trying to get a hold of the blood blood bank um all sorts of different things i felt like i spent more time on the phone trying to get a hold of everyone else who needed to be involved than actually being involved with the patient like apparently like tiago did an io procedure unbeknownst to me i was totally unaware of what was going on besides oh the blood pressure is going down like blood pressure was fine i'm talking to everybody and then suddenly blood pressure is not fine so (laughs) it it was uh nice that i had you know tiago and the other intern there uh it was nice that they were um, helping out as much as they could i know at some point like and initially it was just like okay i'm I'm going to talk to surgery i'm going to talk to radiology i'm going to talk to the other consultant gi um and then like i had basically called everybody and i called the family as well and i was like thinking to myself like what else can i be doing at this point the patient is technically stable so i should be able to probably go downstairs here in a minute but then i was thinking to myself like this problem is probably not going to just go away like this is probably going to be an ongoing issue like we haven't actually really solved it like the patient is still having actively this issue and i've just consulted a whole bunch of people who will come by and see the patient and i've ordered some tests to better characterize what's going on but like the patient still is having this issue and this if left alone this issue will result in a further deterioration of the patient so like I should probably talk to the ICU because this is if this if this gets worse, it's going to go up to them. Like we don't handle this on this floor. (laughs) Like this becomes like a patient needs pressers or anything like that. Like this is that they can't do that on this floor. So uh, I decided to go and reach out to the ICU, explain the situation to them, and they're like, "Okay, thanks for letting us know." and they they gave me their recommendations as well which was always helpful again as an intern i don't take it as insulting when when the consultants are like all saying the same thing it's like okay great i've already done three of those things (laughs) the other one i've gotten slightly different variations on so we're kind of covering everything at this point so i'm glad to hear that what i've done so far is not a complete disaster um and then, so I, I get done talking to them, and, and I'm waiting for another consultant group to get back to me. And then, oh, what was it going? On? I got a message from like, the ICU on the secure chat. It's like, hey, would you just you want us to come down and see this patient? And I was like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> come down and see this patient. That that be that sounds wonderful to me. Uh, get, and again, it's just like, well, nothing. It left. If this continues, they will become. Uh, They will be be in a situation where the ICU needs to be involved, so it's like let's just have them come down and see them. Because at the very worst, they come down and see, they might give you extra recommendations. At the same time, also struggling to figure out how fast to infuse albumin. That was one recommendation (laughs) I was like, oh, give them like a half a liter of albumin five percent. I'm like, thank you for telling me five percent, because that's like five and twenty five percent, and I'm not really sure if I know when to give one over the other. So thank you for giving me the 5%. And then, like, the next step of the order was, like, how fast do you want me to, to infuse this? And just, like, everything else I order already kind of comes preset. So... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, maybe the internet has got will have my back on this one. I'm like, how fast to infuse 5% albumin? <laughs> and, you know, it was basically, like, anything with, from within 5... It was like five minutes, within five minutes or two hours. And I'm like, that is a pretty wide
1: window. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Wide window of time I could choose from. So I chose five minutes. Um, Whatever. It was was like, it's going to take some time for albumin to come from wherever it comes from, but to get up to us. Same like the blood. The blood isn't going to be here within two minutes. Uh, it did actually come rather quickly, which was nice. Uh, usually, it's not been my experience, but uh, we—I guess I haven't always—I haven't ordered stat blood before. Yeah. Uh, so stat does mean stat. And that's was <laughs> helpful. Um, so I figured I would have time to adjust the albumin rate uh, once <laughs> once the uh, I had time to talk to someone. And of course, like I, I messaged the ICU people. I'm like, well, how fast do you think I should put that? <laughs> But they were already on the way down, so uh, up. We're on the eighth floor, so up. Um, anyway, so I, I finally get a hold of the last consultant, and before, as I'm about ready to talk to the last consultant, and the nurse, like the nurse mentioned, oh, the blood pressure seems to be going down. And I'm like, hey, Tiago, can you just pop your head in there and, and like see what the blood pressure actually is, and then let me know. And so he goes over there, and at first he's like, oh, it's like 100 over something. I'm like, okay, that's about where she's been at all day, so no, no big deal. And then later on, he's like, oh, he, I'm on the middle of the phone call with the last consultant, and they're giving me their recommendations, which is essentially, why are you calling us? Uh, you should talk to someone else. If we, if we do our thing, it's going to be massively a, a major operation uh, we should be the last line. And it's like, great. That's good to know. I was just told to talk to you <laughs> at <laughs> least so you guys can be aware of what's going on. And then, and they're like, okay, so how is the patient? Like, st- are they stable? And then like, that's when Tiago gets me, the blood pressure 55 over 40. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that's a change. That's a bit of a change that might be considered hemodynamically unstable. And luckily at that moment, um, icu w- rolls in uh the icu c- consultants roll in and they see all that um and they're like we need to put this patient on pressers like obviously like this was going to be like pressers pressers means going up to the icu and immediately that means like if the icu wants patient on pressers
1: the icu is taking them they're, they're taking this patient <laughs> <laughs> I am,
0: i've done all my work i need to document what i've done um, I need to make sure I talk to them about anything else they needed to hear from me. And of course, like the patient needs to be on pressors at that moment. Uh none of the nurses on that floor like to do pressors. So the apparently the rule is is that if you need to put a patient on pressors on the floor, you have to contact the rapid response people. So a second rapid response was called. Uh <laughs> and somewhere in the middle like before the ICU people came I was like I'm getting a little swamped with like phone calls and I'm hearing the nurse ask me certain questions like I, look, I must have looked so dumb because I, she was like do you, want, do you think we should administer T, TXA and I was just staring at her and Tiago was like next to me and I was like what do you think Tiago and he's like well we could and I was like what is TXA <laughs> <laughs> just like really quietly like what is txa and i like in that moment i had no idea what txa is and so like the nurse is giving me a treatment option and i'm just like i have no idea like i don't know what that is <laughs> which is never it doesn't feel good um i'm an intern so I, I got some growing to do obviously but um anywho it was it was quite the experience um I ended up asking the rapid response senior from, I think he was working like 3 South or something like that. He had responded to the first rapid, and I recognized him. So I looked him up real quick, and I'm like, hey, are you in rapids tonight? He's like, yes. Can you come back up here real quick? <laughs> <laughs> I got some questions. Uh, so he showed back up, and he, it was helpful to have him at, around. Um, and again, ICU pop, showed up, and they didn't show up em- empty-handed either, which was nice. They they rolled down one of their ultrasounds so they started like looking around, trying to yeah you know, see certain things. They like, looking for the inferior vena cava, see if it was collapsing, if the patient was you know having some issues with fluid. Um, anyway, it was it was a uh, wonderful that they showed up. When they did, I was very thankful that um, I called them at that time because uh, <laughs> it. It was only kind of a suggestion by one of the consultants was like, if the patient becomes hemodynamically unstable, you should get ICU involved. And all I was thinking of is like, this patient is probably going to become hemodynamically unstable because what are the chances that this just stops? Uh, <laughs> this, this, this I've done nothing besides order blood transfusions and a test. What are the chances that this just reverses itself and fixes itself? Probably not high. So I should get, ICU involved now, and I was very happy that I did that. I, if, if if there was anything I did right, it was that. <laughs> <laughs> there was not a whole lot else I did completely right, but um, anyway, so the patient ended up up uh, downstairs in the ICU, and I ended eight south. That was <laughs> <laughs> I signed up my patients to um, the nighttime person because the nighttime person had by that point had shown up and. Uh I gave probably the world's second worst handoff, um, and then left. I say second worst because I had given a handoff the previous day that also felt like the world's worst handoff. So <laughs> um just because I, I knew a good amount what's going on with patients, but like when she asked certain questions, I was just like, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. We were not focused on that today. Um so not that, that's a good excuse. That's just how it was. Um Anyway, that was that was the end of 8 South for yeah. now.
1: Well, he says it's the end of 8 South. He's still, like, <laughs> you catch him in the mornings or in the evenings before we go to bed checking and reading up on what's been happening with, with people. <laughs> I,
0: I'm not... So there's a few different reasons for it. I'm not doing this because I'm... Cur- I, this isn't just a scratching a curiosity because you're not... Once you're no longer involved in a patient's care, you have no business, quote unquote, being in their record. Um, but I would say because I was involved in their care and this is a learning hospital, a teaching hospital, I'm trying to understand what happened, wh- where the patient, what kind of treatments the patient got. So that, I mean, also I do care about this patient. So I do care about all my patients and especially the ones that got very sick and didn't just go home. Um, so I do like to know what happened and what they did and like different treatments options that they tried so that next time I have a patient with a similar presentation, I'll know what what happens what goes on and so that's kind of my mentality I'm I'm not just curious for the sake of curiosity No um, I know that but it. <laughs>
1: I know that because he also comes home and will be like, "I should have done this," or "I should have done this," or he'll look up uh, different presentations of things and be like, "Oh, we can do this tomorrow," or whatnot. And so he has a hard time of letting things go, which I think is good because I think you do learn more that way. But sometimes you just gotta.
0: Yeah, no, for sure, it's it's tough. Uh, (laughs) Well, when you're when you're not able to, you don't know very much as an intern, I feel like, I, I don't know very much as an intern, other interns might be different, but I feel like when I don't know a whole lot, I I need to do a lot more work to try to know more because otherwise I'm not, I'm either just learning on the job or I'm, I, I think generally speaking, you do need to go home and research and look up things and you do, it's, it is still school. In that regard, like you are still studying, you are still trying to get better at your craft and you, the 80 hours a week at the hospital sometimes is not enough time to learn certain things. So You do have to spend some off time looking things up.
1: Yeah, well, and too, I think when you are a little bit more emotionally invested in someone's outcome, you remember more of what was done and what could have been done and what was later done and what actually helped them improve so you can kind of harken back to that a little bit easier than reading a book or, or on like these are the steps that you should take in, the, in a dka patient actually having a <laughs> dka patient and be like this is what worked and this is why it worked yeah
0: and knowing knowing a lot about that is helpful for sure uh, i mean obviously that you, know, you said the book learning is somewhat helpful, but the, the practical aspect is generally the best. Um, obviously patients are never quite textbook. Um, you, you you do get a few, but you get, you get ones that are just like, this doesn't, you don't fit into the textbook for whatever reason. Um, or you have a multiple, multitude of things going on. So we are trying to deal with all of them, but we can't, if one or two of your conditions is preventing us from dealing with a third, like a GI bleed will prevent you from doing... So a GI bleed in a patient with a DVT and a PE will prevent you from dealing with the PE and DVT because, hey, they're actively bleeding, so do you want to anticoagulate them? Probably not. <laughs> You're going to kill them if you anticoagulate them, but they have they have this DVT, they have this uh, PE, that's when you maybe start thinking of like an IVC filter if uh, IR agrees it's necessary. Um, so if you have IR, some facilities don't have IR available, and so they may not be able to, maybe, I'm not sure if vascular can do it, but um, it just becomes a different thing that, uh, different things you have to think about. Um, or if a patient has like hyperthyroidism and they have a small bowel obstruction and they've been taking PTU, but because they have a small bowel obstruction and it's being treated conservatively with an NG tube and a patient on NPO, um, then you're not going to be able to give them any pills. Because what's the point of having them smaller pills for the NG tube just to suck it up? So, uh, which is something I, I did learn. Uh, uh, maybe I should have known this before, but apparently when treating a small bowel obstruction, if it is a patient with a first-time small bowel obstruction really no history of abdominal surgeries then the general plan is to go ahead and surgically ex- do like an x-lap an exploratory laparoscopy. for me um, if it, maybe that's technically incorrect but they essentially go in and do the surgery if a patient is coming in with a small bowel obstruction and they have a significant history of pre- previous abdominal surgeries then conservative management is generally preferred um, for, at least initially unless the patient's like unstable for any reason so
1: is that because they generally have had bowel removed and you don't want to remove too much uh, and then get them on like a colostomy bag or whatnot well,
0: so yes and no i mean it could be a part of it but essentially uh, a previous surgery generally has like adhesions involved, oh, okay. and so the the bowels could be kind of kinking on some of the adhesions. And if you give it just kind of a break, it might just unkink itself. Essentially, lack of a better term there. <laughs> um, whereas, like a new onset could be more significant or. T- catastrophic like there's nothing maybe there's nothing in there that it should be twisting itself up on so if it got itself twisted it's probably really twist i don't i'm not exactly sure of the rationale but also if you have somebody who's had multiple surgeries and they have all these adhesions from the multiple surgeries like you're going to kind of open and you're going to create more adhesions and trying to get in there and deal with it through the adhesions is going to be problematic and difficult So, like, you're going to be possibly doing a very difficult surgery that's going to make it even more hostile next time if they have another small bowel or next time they need to go into the abdomen. So, like, we're creating worse and worse possible outcomes for the patient Uh, as far as surgery. This is how I understand it, and I'm not a surgeon and I'm not a surgical resident, so uh, take that for what it is. But generally speaking, you go into the abdomen, you create adhesions, and it makes it, slightly more challenging the next time you go into the abdomen so you want to limit the number of times you go into the abdomen <laughs> as you can so conservative treatment sometimes is a nice way to go on some of these patients but that is uh, I don't I don't have a good explanation of why no surgery means go in and go ahead and deal with it right away uh, I don't have a good explanation for that but that seems to be what I was told so fair point uh yeah, so that has been I dont think uh, as much as like that was a, a fun little incident uh, incident um it was so much more to my week, obviously than just that, but yeah, <laughs> but that just kind of punctuated it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah i mean i I had good patients, I had not so good patients the floor had some interesting patients um uh, definitely one common theme that kind of kept coming up is uh, we talked about it before too is. Um, when you get something that aggravates you just kind of you can be mad about it for a little bit but then like don't let it bother you is something like so a lot of oftentimes as a resident service other hospital groups will transfer patients to you Um, it seems like at least in our hospital i think i've heard of it happening in other hospitals is that they get tired of their of this particular patient and so they will advance for the patient off their floor and whether or not the patient really truly needs to be in a step-down unit uh, is questionable (laughs) there was a few that I think the the first reaction when we were getting to sign out was like so why do they need to be in step down like it looks like everything you're doing is exactly what I would be doing so why would they need to be here Um, but you know obviously we don't get to say no to a lot of patients if if at all so (laughs) it, it ends up it's definitely um, debatably whether that's a good practice. I mean, I think there's a good, solid case to be made that it's not a good practice, especially if if they're not going to do anything different and they don't need the intensity of care that like a step down unit or ICU provides. Then like the patient will might spend like twenty four hours on that unit before they're transferred down to a different floor, and uh, for continuity of care purposes sometimes it's nice to have the same person who knows everything from start to finish doesn't doesn't miss anything isn't forgetting uh, something unique or interesting that might be important to the patient's care so patients being bumped around is not always the best of of plans but it just happens uh, and it can be very aggravating um, just getting patients that uh, honestly just don't belong you you don't feel like belong on the floor but i've saw a few times on the team where people would get very upset about it and they vent and they rant and rave about it and it it seems to kind of engulf it has a potential to engulf them and and how they perform and how they do things and it's like well, at the end of the day you just got to take care of the patient if they're on your floor you can be mad about it but like you just gotta shrug it off and just get to work because it's not the patient's fault they got downgraded. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't know, but uh, you still have to do a job. So that's a uh, maybe a little tidbit there. It's going to be. It it, does, it feels like it's um, very common that we get patients that just get bounced around because the other hospitalists don't want to deal with the patient.
1: Well, I think I mean it's a common refrain in life, really, because like you go through. You go through any job, you go through medical school, you go through residency, there are going to be things that you don't like about how whatever system is working. So, um, you don't like your, your away rotations or your rotations that you were given in medical school, or you don't like, (laughs) I don't know, a certain teacher, you don't get along with them, or you just don't like, um, that, you got a new CEO and they restructured your pay scale and now you're no longer getting bonuses or bonuses are significantly harder to get or whatever the case may be, you're going to have these things anywhere in life. So I guess it's you can learn it now.
0: <laughs> yeah. The other thing is hard. I think one of the things that I have to always remind myself is that uh, it doesn't make me better or anything like that, but like I, I'm 34 years old and a lot of the interns with me are all like 20 you know 25 maybe and so they always have they struggle with some of this stuff and i think that just comes with maybe some age and maturity and experience so need to not be so hard on (laughs) some of the other interns i guess
1: well i think too it's like i know a lot of fellow trinity students that we came up with like they went from school to school to more school and whether or not they had a job during that whole time was debatable.
0: Yeah, and that's true for. I mean, not obviously not just Trinity, but it's true no. for probably more especially true for a lot of the uh, U.S. MDs and DOs that you know they did well in undergrad and they went straight into medical school. Nothing wrong with that, but like, there's no, there was no career, there was no job that they got along the way, and not obviously that like, there's notable exceptions to that. Of course, every, there's every medical school class has notable exceptions than the, your classical medical student. But by and large, a lot of these, a lot of these people have never held a job, uh, a, a professional job. Like maybe they've had some jobs in high school or college, like part-time stuff, but like not, not a real professional job. So it just, it's just going to come with experience. And I feel like sometimes you just kind of learned faster. <laughs> um, I I'm I feel like as much as it stinks that I'm um, as old as I am and maybe I'll be when I'm done with residency I'll be at a certain age and if I get go to fellowship I'll be at another even older age and then my my longevity of career is not particularly long as others uh I, I still do feel like there's a little bit of a blessing of uh, my my previous experiences and whatnot that uh, I, I do kind of know some of the pitfalls that other doctors have come come, come through and did uh, when we were onboarding them uh, uh, when I was a surgery coordinator. I understand like how certain things work in general, even just understanding how insurances work.
1: Yeah, I think uh, that's a big one with a lot of new doctors, just a lot of people in general, is they don't understand how insurances work. And so they don't necessarily understand the importance of how you notate and it does make a difference whether or not something is going to get approved or yeah. not whether or not you notate certain things yeah
0: i think it, it becomes really and i'm not here to defend like insurance companies like there's definitely some practices i don't really particularly like but there's definitely some very anecdotal or pithy things that people say that is like oh the insurance company will do x y and z because they can and like there certainly is some elements of truth to a lot of these statements uh there's certainly some elements of truth but like uh generally speaking insurance companies don't act on the whims of nothing like <laughs> they they are following general guidelines and so your job and it sucks because you have so many other things to do is to sometimes find what those guidelines are and figure out are you being are the guidelines being applied to you correctly or should there be a different set of guidelines that this the insurance company should be using to apply to your patient like so for example, if your patient, if you're ordering a CT scan to evaluate a patient's lung mass that you've known about, well, you're not going to order a low-dose CT scan for surveillance, which is what you do when the patient turns 50 after smoking for, I think, I forget, it was 55 years, or so. I, uh, the brush up on my USPSTF guidelines, but uh, essentially you you just order a CT scan. <laughs> you you do, you wouldn't order a low dose. You're not screening for cancer. You know there's a nodule there. So, uh, depending on which order you put in, will dictate how the insurance company will act. So, like in one particular case, I had a patient who was getting denied a CT scan, and naturally, people are the first comment you get from the attending and other people is like, "Oh, it's an outrage." why would they not do it this patient obviously needs a ct scan blah 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 and yes they, they do and the insurance company probably knows that but you didn't order the right scan the insurance company and especially like the nurses or the even more likely the people who work below the nurses just filing stuff and okay this billing code was ordered this you know it's a ct scan of the chest and you ordered a Seven two seven two one or something like that. Uh, I don't know. That was what we did for like knee replace, uh, knee CTs. But essentially, you ordered that, so I go to the guidelines and go that code codes for this, and that pulls up this set of guidelines. And so you have to meet these criteria in order to get approved. And generally speaking, they follow usual and customary standard of care sort of stuff. So. If you ordered a low-dose CT scan, which is going to pop up in the guidelines for screening for lung cancer, and your patient is 45 years old, it is going to get denied because your patient is 45 years old, and the guidelines say I think 50 years old. So uh, you have to be smart. Uh, <laughs> just because the patient needs the CT scan and you ordered it incorrectly, uh, the person in the like doesn't know anything about it, like. You would not expect the nurse reviewer to know 100% of how medicine works. And if you don't... Anyway, that's a long story short. Order it correctly. Um, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of there's legitimate gripes with insurance companies. So I'm not going to stand here and, and say, oh, insurance companies are great. But generally speaking, they follow set guidelines by and large and as long as you follow them you can probably get good care for your patients it just stinks because you're going to be very busy i know i'm busy and i barely have any patients to worry about so do i really have time to dig in and look at this stuff and really try to figure out how to change what we ordered to make sure it's the correct thing It, it can be very convoluted and very frustrating um but you know, they they built a system so they can streamline their processes, and we have to figure out how to work within their game. But knowing how that stuff works can be helpful because I think again it's the the temptation is to just be like, all oh, these evil insurance companies are denying you, and there's nothing else there's nothing I can do for you, and then you send the patient on your way, basically being like, well, you need it, so you should pay for it out of pocket. And the patient's like, I'm poor, I can't pay for this out of pocket, <laughs> so they don't get the scan you don't do the appeal, you don't, (laughs) and so it ends up just the patient doesn't get what they need. Um, When, yeah, there's a different solution you could have followed. Uh, And of course there's like different things that, oh, well the insurance company will make you pay tens of thousands of dollars before they pay a dime. And it's like, that's not, that's not accurate, but.
1: uh (laughs) No, so case in point, my, one of my old coworkers, and I, I can share this because I mean, she's posted it publicly. So, Um, her husband is dealing with cancer and like she posted the other day that your insurance has paid 618,200 and however many dollars. Um, And obviously they've been charged a whole bunch of money as well because um, they've met their deductible. They have met their out of pocket maximum, but like ambulance rides, those aren't always covered because it depends on if it's in the network and they're for whatever reason when bills passed, um, <laughs> they the ambulance companies, <laughs> um, depending on which one you use, unfortunately, um,
0: can be in and out of the network, can
1: be in and out of network, and you it's just whoever's closest is who arrives, right? And so, um it is what it is, and I, they tried to pass some legislation to prevent these big bills, and it just it wasn't. It's there's so many companies; it's just not well, feasible.
0: So that that's even in and of itself a can of worms. Yes, uh, <laughs> but so uh, yeah, look, we can get into that just very briefly. So uh, you would think, I mean, on the surface, uh, it's basically it's called surprise billing. You, know, you ask for services that a let's say if at a hospital or you going to a hospital you ask for services and they're rendered to you you don't know who's coming in contact who's consulting who's doing the anesthesia and you don't know any of these people you don't get a choice in any of these people and some of them might be in network and some of them might not be in network and so the ones that are not at a, not in network they get billed at a very different rate and it's uh, generally just unpleasant <laughs> it's um because out-of-network, there's a lot of insurance plans do have, like, an out-of-network net, benefit, but it ends up being this kind of atrocious um, percentage. The, percentage. But the problem is, is that it's what's called usual and customary, which then goes to a completely different kind of fee schedule thing. And instead of the, like, the insurance company will pay, like, oh, well, we'll pay... Seventy percent, which sounds like a great thing, but there's a seventy percent of usual and customary. But if like, the bill, if the bill is like say ten thousand, and the insurance company thinks that usual and customary is five thousand, well, they pay thirty percent, seventy percent of the five thousand. Well, that then means like the other five thousand,
1: <laughs> that is
0: considered not usual and customary, can still be billed to the patient, and that that's kind of crappy and that's, that's what I think the legislation was trying to accomplish is dealing with that aspect of it however the flip side of that is is that doctors who are on call who um, are trying to, to render services uh, they were basically being told well you cannot bill based off of your rate you will bill based off of ours and that is going to be substantially lower and so a lot of them like well I'm on call So I'm spending time in the hospital taking care of patients, and I'm getting basically people I'm not contracted with who are going to be sent to me, and I'm not allowed to bill for my services at a reasonable rate. I'm going to get basically paid like 20 bucks for this, and it's going to eat up a lot of my time, and that doesn't seem fair. And so I'm not going to really weigh in on that. I know a lot of doctors have some... Uh, frustrations with that and the certain ones I think I saw I think some online have commented on basically no longer taking call be over the issue because when you take call you take patients regardless of what insurance they have regardless of whether you're in network or not um, so that becomes frustrating because uh, like sometimes you might might not, might not want to be a part of a network of insurances because like a you can't take those you, you, you can't handle the volume of that that uh number of patients like I say you're a small pediatrician office and you take five insurances like if you took every because like Medicaid has like multiple different managed care mm-hmm. groups over them or under them and maybe you go like I'll take three of them, not all five. So I'll, I'll see a bunch of Medicaid patients but if I see all five I'm gonna get such a huge volume of patients that of Medicaid it's gonna drown out my commercial payers. And then I'm not going to be able to make any money. I'm going to lose money. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to have a practice. So I can't take all the Medicaid. I'll take some of them. And that kind of balances out. That works. That works out that you can still be a relatively profitable practice. Keep your doors open. Pay your staff well. And even take some money for yourself. Like that works out well. But if you take all of them, then you can't. You, you get inundated, you get flooded, you can't do anything and you don't, you can't pay your staff. You can't, <laughs> you can't keep the lights on because the pay the pay scale for Medicaid is substantially le- less than a commercial payer. That's legitimately a fact. Um, <laughs> and whether you like that or not. Uh, so you, maybe you don't choose to take certain payers, uh, for that reason. Well then you go to the hospital and you're basically taking on these self pay patient or these uh, patients who have different insurances. Um, and Medicaid is not exactly a good example because maybe it's like Aetna commercial, but you don't take Aetna, maybe because you just like I don't like the rates that you offer, so I don't I don't need to accept your rates. And so it, it becomes a whole big deal, and a lot of people have some pretty strong opinions about it on both sides of it. So that's one <laughs> one aspect. <laughs> um, the other aspect I think that people kind of get hung up on is like the explanation of benefits or the like, oh the hospital sent me this bill and oh my goodness, I got a bill for like a hundred thousand dollars for services rendered after like a week in the ICU and a week on the floor and that's incredible. That's just like I'm gonna be paying so much money. Even it's like, but you have insurance. Like your insurance is going to pay you're gonna pay your deductible. You're gonna pay the co-insurance up to your out-of-pocket max, and then the insurance takes care of the rest, <laughs> generally speaking, yep. if, as long as you have an out-of-pocket max. Um, yes. So also, like, don't care. As long as you're a network, <laughs> don't care what the hospital sends you. Like, that, that primary rule of thumb is, like, you're going to get, like, this this bill from the hospital. The hospital, I think, generally has to send you a bill and say hey this is how much everything costs when you came to the hospital obviously this is not a bill right now because your, your insurance companies work we're working it out with your insurance company and everyone has like a, a little aneurysm when that happens like, <laughs> something in the brain explodes when you see that because it's, it's astronomically expensive it's it's crazy like who can afford that and the the real reality is nobody pays that um yeah. I, don't ask me how the hospitals come up with the numbers and why they come up with certain numbers. I'm sure there's a bit of a game between uh, contracts and whatnot, and that's really that's their game. That's, that's how the hospital tries to figure out how they're going to get paid and how they can keep their doors open, how they can pay everybody, uh, continue to invest in the hospital and invest in new equipment, new training, and all that fun stuff. And the insurance company is playing their game of how they can – Pay you as little as possible uh, because I mean that's it's essentially a business. These are business yeah. models, well, and
1: and quite frankly, what the hospital sends you. So like for when our right, right before, <laughs> right before we went to the island and our fourth child was born, <laughs> I was working for a company and they ended up merging with another company. And my benefits changed right before I gave birth. And so when we were in the hospital, I did not have my new insurance card. I knew I was covered, but I did not have an insurance card and I did not have my policy number or anything. I just knew that I was going to now be under Blue Cross Blue Shield.
0: Right, no no so, member number number yep. or anything like that, and so, they can't look it up. Yeah,
1: they can't look it up because they don't have it yet. They don't
0: have a policy number or a plan number or anything like that. So
1: I get the bill for, what, 30000 or something, and <laughs> <laughs> the hospital called, and they're like, since you're a self-pay patient, we're going to reduce it to ten. which I was just like, well... Give me a week and I will have an insurance card and it will be backdated to, <laughs> to this date. So I should, I should be covered. And like, I had known before what my out of pocket max was because they had given us all that benefit thing and we had taken out the, yeah, we, the,
0: we grabbed everything we needed. we HSA or whatever. HSA yeah.
1: Or FSA, so we whatever. knew we had everything covered and we weren't going to pay anything out of pocket, but I could see how getting that bill would be just terrifying <laughs> if like, you
0: did I'm ruined. I'm, I'm, financia- ruined. I'm never going to yes. financially recover. Yes. Goodness.
1: And um, so, like, obviously, we got smarter with each kid. But, like, with our first kid, um, we didn't do an HSA. Um, and so we did have to pay our out-of-pocket and the hospital at that time was like well if you paid in one lump sum we'll give you a 10 or a 15% yeah. discount because as opposed to doing a payment plan so yeah. i mean the hospitals will work
0: with but you but like but again like the amount they bill versus like so let's say that $30,000 bill like that that would once you put the insurance card on like the insurance is not paying $30,000 no and you're not paying like if say the insurance says no no for for our contract we only do tw- like ten thousand. Ten thousand dollars is the bill. Like then the insurance goes, okay, well out of that ten thousand dollars they have to pay two thousand dollar deductible and now that's eight thousand dollars. Okay, now we pay eighty percent until we get to ten thousand. Or until basically they pay ten thousand dollars or five thousand dollars and then so you do the math and but like so what then? What then happens to the other twenty thousand dollars that the insurance company said? No, no, we're not. That's not. That's not the rate. Well, the twenty thousand dollars doesn't exist. Like that's just you go based off the contracted rate, for example. And that's what, why the in-network <laughs> factor kind of works in your favor because your insurance company has already negotiated
1: the contracted these, rate.
0: these deals and like for what services rendered, what can they actually bill for. Um, So there's all these notions that, well, the insurance company only pays this much, then the patient will get stuck with the rest. And it's like, that is not how that works. Um, It can work that way if you are out of network. Obviously, if you are uninsured, then that can be a problem. If you have one of those weird insurances that is like only pays $1,000, like there's some some very strange insurances I ran across when I was a surgery coordinator. I don't know where people found them. They were hot garbage. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> they were basically like you got into the hospital. They would pay a thousand dollars a day, but like they weren't contracted with anybody. And it's just like so. It's like this weird accident insurance, but it's not really accident insurance.
1: Yeah, it's, I think there's a lot of younger individuals who think that. Well, I don't need insurance at this moment, really, because I'm healthy, and. It's generally true. General, and it's generally true, but you are playing the odds because if you get into some sort of accident or whatnot and have something, then you really are screwed. Well, you have I mean
0: <laughs> If you don't have an insurance, no, that could no, be no. A big deal. But a lot but of times
1: they'll they'll pick like the cheapest insurance, which has no out of pocket max or uh, something like. Well, the, what do you mean by
0: that? You mean it basically it goes to infinity? You yeah, pay, go- you pay twenty percent of the bill until the bill was... Until you until, have no more bills. Um, t- yeah. Yeah. So, uh, which it's nice to even capping at twenty like ten thousand dollars is is a pretty high out of pocket max if I'm if I'm remembering everything. But like twenty percent until you pay ten thousand, that's basically let's see, a hundred thousand, like two hundred thousand dollars worth of medical bills you have to rack up before you can really i think if i'm asked make if i math checks out but uh, it's late <laughs> it's late um yeah anyway so that I don't, again i don't love insurance it's good to know how it works i think it's uh good to be measured in your responses to like everything because if you get frustrated and you think that basically this is an evil entity out to to kill patients and hurt you and make your life harder uh in some ways they are uh <laughs> in some ways they're not um If you feel that way, you might be more inclined to uh, argue, get irate, or give up. And uh, most of those options don't end in positive outcomes for your patients. Who, At the end of the day, that's what you're trying to get through. If you're trying to get the patient into treatment, you need to know what things to say to get through. To the right person to get the things approved. Um, I used to write letters where I would tailor the entire letter based off of the medical policy that I was appealing to and basically saying, hey, this chart note lines up with this, this answers this question, this answers this question, this answers this question. Based on your policy, this should be approved. And that's all I had to write generally. And I had a pretty good track record of getting patients approved there's of course going to be some random exceptions and medications are a completely different ballgame that i have very little experience in yeah medications Uh, are
1: are, yeah (laughs) so uh, (laughs) we won't go down that not not
0: tonight we don't have time for that tonight Um, (laughs) but you can if you know what you're looking for know how to make your argument generally speaking like there's a temptation from a lot of medical people to go i'm the doctor i know what's best for my patient and that is true but that is not a persuasive argument to the insurance companies (laughs) they have heard that argument a thousand times probably that day and that is not a persuasive enough argument for them to be like well if you said so doc then i'll approve everything uh, they're going well. No, I have to basically I have to answer to the policy that we have um, The lawyers have made these tables that basically say that certain things need to have certain things and Following basic standards of care guidelines that generally a lot of these insurance companies actually follow CMS guidelines So as much as you think that some of these insurance companies are bloodsuckers um, It's your federal government that makes a lot of these guidelines so that's fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for example, like a lot of these insurance companies would be paying inpatient surgical fees um, for total joint replacements. Total joint replacements uh, for a lot of places were inpatient procedures. Um, I mean, up until a few years ago, you, if you got a total joint replacement, that was an inpatient hospital procedure, which basically meant you were automatically in the hospital inpatient. You didn't have to meet the three midnight rule that Medicare had for everything else. It was an inpatient procedure. So a lot of insurance, especially in the older populations, Medicare replacement plans had inpatient benefits that were phenomenal. Like you would pay a co-pay of like $425 a day. And oftentimes these patients would spend like two days in the hospital and go home. So that's $800 for a $30,000 procedure. Like pretty good. Pretty solid. Well, <laughs> um, we got better at doing total joint replacements. Uh, a lot of times we found that we didn't need to send patients. Um, we didn't need to keep patients in the hospital for multiple days. Some patients could do them at surgery centers and do them outpatient. Well, then Medicare adjusted its guidelines to basically say, well, no, now they are outpatient surgeries unless you have to prove that there's a medical it's medically necessary for the patient to be in the hospital for more than three midnights, or you anticipate the patient being in the hospital for more than three midnights. And then now it slipped into an outpatient realm and that suddenly all the other insurance companies were like, well, if this is an outpatient procedure according to Medicare, then it's an outpatient procedure according to us. So (laughs) now instead of this $400 a day for an inpatient benefit, we go to a 20% co-insurance. So like it became, so much more expensive for patients to do it this way. Um, so uh, that's all that basically said, Like That was a guideline that CMS drove. And when CMS drove a guideline, the insurance companies followed suit. It wasn't the insurance companies first and then CMS. It was. And to be fair, this was changed because a lot of times these doctors' doctors wanted to do these procedures in ASCs and they wanted to do them outpatient uh, because there was some healthy patients. But you could not do an inpatient-only procedure at an ASC so in order to fix that they had to make it so that you can do it in outpatient and by doing that it changed the game for everybody else so that's just one example generally speaking when cms changes their rules the other insurance companies will follow and so especially on medicare replacement plans cms really governs how that all works so it's not always just the blood sucking insurance companies it sometimes is our own government Which is if I had to go on my little pedestal, this is another reason why I think nationalized healthcare would not work particularly great because a lot of the problems are federal. Uh, Anyway, uh, (laughs) we're gonna drop that. (laughs) We are gonna stop there. (laughs) Uh, Um,
1: Yeah, so I think there's a lot of facets to being a doctor that don't necessarily have to do with your knowledge base and how you treat your patient. It has to do with paperwork and how, your staff. It really does. If you have good staff that can do the appeals, if you have good staff that can...
0: Knowledgeable. Yeah. What what you're doing. The services need to be rendered. Um, then... It really makes a huge difference. Yeah. Because um, I look back at like how I was doing things. I didn't know. Like I remember trying to t- talk to patient uh, talk to you, talking to uh, internal medicine services for legacy hospital and like hey we want to um, do this total joint replacement patient we want to do this surgery on this patient um, but we want you guys to admit the patient and you manage them medically and then they'll be like what's the medical reason you need us to manage this patient and be like um diabetes and uh (laughs) like you're just searching for their medical history and like trying to find like and that was a surgery coordinator that was what i was asked to do but like looking at it now it's like manage a patient medically like why why would i need to admit this patient post-op to my floor for diabetes management after a surgery that's ridiculous like (laughs) any doctor should be able to do that uh, and this patient shouldn't even be like on the floor for very long. So, like, why would I need to do that? That's crazy. Um, Your
1: ortho doctor does not want to round. I know. But, I
0: mean, that's essentially what it was. Like, ortho doctor, he he has to round, but he doesn't want to be called at two o'clock in the morning when the patient's blood sugar is sixty. <laughs> he wants <laughs> he wants the internal medicine doc to be doing that. Um, I get it. I get why they're doing it. But like now, it's like, man, back back then, I thought that was a, a pretty solid reason. And now it's like, no, that was, (laughs) that was a dumb reason. Like (laughs) that was a real dumb reason. So you need good staff um, (laughs) that can help answer some of those questions that are a little bit knowledgeable anyway. Um, Sorry, that was a lot of rambling about things that may, or may not interest a lot of people.
1: Well, it might not. It, it, insurance never interests anybody, but I think that yeah, it is a, good to have at least some it's, sort of knowledge it's base. currently
0: the system we are working in.
1: Yeah. So, anyways, we hope you guys have a good week. We hope you guys are getting those interviews. Um, <laughs> and we will have another episode next week. That sounds good. Bye.